Well, if you've been here for a while, you know that we've been praying and imploring our God to provide for us a venue where we could meet and have room for our children. I spoke to Cindy, who oversees the school-age part, and Toria, who oversees our preschool ministry. And we've had up to 16 little ones in one shisha room last week, and so we certainly need uh, a new venue that would give us the space necessary to keep growing and being a good steward. And on Sunday, we had a very special day as a faith family where we humbled ourselves and, and we fasted and we prayed and we begged God to work because on Wednesday, um, I went with Pastor Cam from ECC and we submitted a formal petition to the head of the Abu Dhabi Education Council to grant us permission to meet in a school. For there are schools that be willing to let us rent space, but we need ADEC to give us the approval. And I got an email just actually an hour and a half ago, so just this morning, that the head of ADEC has not made a decision. He then has transferred it to someone else. And so not uncommon and not unexpected, he didn't say no. He didn't want to shame us or anyone else for that matter, and so he did not say yes, but he didn't say no. He didn't cite a rule or any kind of, you know, ruling what we can't meet in the school. He just transferred it to the person in charge of private schools. And so we're told to wait a week or two, and then he gave us a phone number to call and follow up. So now we keep waiting, and we keep praying. Because until God shows us that it's not going to be in the school and opens a new door, we'll keep praying and trusting that our Father in heaven knows what is best for his daughters and his sons. And if indeed we're told no about meeting in the school, it is only because God has something even better for us. So we could never hope to imagine or dream up ourselves. But until God reveals that, we'll keep praying and trusting that we'll be told yes because that's what I'm praying for. Um, the last two weeks, I didn't, I, I didn't preach, and so it's going to be twice as long today now, right? <laughs> no, of course not. Um, we have one of our elders, um, Chris, and then last week, as, as you heard from Sheba, her pastor in Dubai, Pastor Dave Furman, preached for us last week, and so it was just a feast for my soul to hear others just proclaim the gospel. But we're back to our series, the book of Titus, and so a lot of you are new the last two weeks, Oh, you already forgot we were in Titus because it's been two weeks. And so let me to refresh your memory and where we've been in this series called Reveal. So the series is revealed. It's stated in the book of Titus. Now that book is actually a letter, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his colleague, Pastor Titus. And the first sentence in the book tells us that Titus was the child in the faith of Paul. And so Paul led him to Christ. Paul went to the island of Crete, and he planted churches, but then Paul moved on. But before he left, he left Titus in charge. He left him to put in order what was still in disarray. And so he asked Titus to make sure that he appointed elders and that he would organize a church. And the theme of the book of Titus is revealed in the very first sentence in verse 3. It says that God has manifested it has made known, brought to light. And so God has manifested, he has revealed the gospel. And so that is the theme of the entire book that ties all the various parts together is this word manifested. 
So that's what we're calling this series Revealed, because God has revealed the gospel. And throughout this series, we've been looking at how we are to reveal the gospel through our faith, in our homes, in our church, and everything that we do in our daily lives. We are to reveal the glory of God and the gospel that allows us to know Him. And so that's what our lives are about, is revealing the gospel itself. And so we are now continuing in the series, and today we're in chapter 3. And so we're talking about now revealing the gospel to our world. And so it is fitting that Pastor Asif is with us today and reminded us that indeed it's a global call to go and make disciples. And so in Titus 3, 1 through 8, we'll be in this morning looking at revealing the gospel to the world. Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Let's read that together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in rich, in, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This magnificent passage describes what the gospel is and then how we are to live that gospel out in everyday life. That's what it's about, living it out. And he says specifically here in verse 2, the word to live it out, who? Towards all people. And he gives a list of qualifications, of characteristics. And he says that you should live this way, seven specific ways, towards all people. And so we're to reveal the gospel to all people. But you know what the problem is? We don't always do that. Oftentimes our lives don't reveal the gospel. A lot of times we just get busy with children and bills and work, and life, and cleaning the house, and life can just get so busy that we just don't even do it. And so I think one of the biggest reasons why oftentimes believers fail to reveal the gospel in their daily lives and to the world as a whole is because of apathy. It just doesn't even cross our minds. It's not that we hate lost people. It's not that we don't want them to know Jesus. We just Don't think about it. It just isn't on their radar. We have our to-do list, and we're we're working through our to-do list every single day and sharing the gospel with your neighbor and sharing the gospel with your coworker just isn't on the list. It's just apathetic. We just don't think about it. But another reason is comfort. Besides apathy, a lot of times, if we're really honest, people that don't know Jesus aren't always the kindest people. They say things, they do things, they treat us certain ways, especially here 
in ways that aren't always favorable or aren't very kind. And so we would rather spend our time with other believers. It's more comfortable because we can be ourselves and they're kind to us and they understand us better and we relate better to other Christians. And so we just kind of insulate ourselves and spend our whole time with other Christians because we don't really want to deal with those that don't know Jesus because they're not always the most savory people. It's just more comfortable to be around others that believe like you do. And so whether it's apathy or comfort or fear, pick your reason why many of us refuse or just don't reveal the gospel. The result is still the same, which is no zeal for the gospel, which is no desire to make disciples, no impact, no influence, no fruit, no accomplishing the mission. And so if we're to live lives where we're accomplishing the mission because we exist as a church and as individuals to glorify God by making and developing disciples, that's why we're here. So I'm thankful for Pastor Austin for reminding us that it's the call to do it around the globe, to glorify God by making and developing disciples. And it, how does that happen? Well, how can you have your heart so gripped where you fight against your own apathy and you fight against your own desires, this idolatry of comfort? What must happen in our hearts so that we will then actually have the impetus, the, the motivation, the desire, the want to go and reveal the gospel every day? Well, it's all about how you live. We must live gospel-centered lives. And so if you're taking notes, the main idea in this passage, and the main idea for today's sermon is that a gospel-centered life will enable you to reveal the gospel. And so it's, it's cyclical, but it has to begin there. It begins with a gospel-centered life. If you're focusing on the gospel in your daily life, so a gospel-centered life will enable, you could say empower, pick your word, fuel you. It will enable you to then reveal the gospel to your world. And so the key to accomplishing this from this text is the first word that Paul writes to Pastor Titus. Remind. What is the key to living a gospel-centered life that reveals the gospel to others? The first word. Remind. We have to remember. It's very important that we remember so that we can fight against our desire for comfort and apathy. Because in our world, it's so fast-paced. We work so many hours that we tend to forget because we're so focused on just what's in front of us. And the problems and just life in general, life happens and it's fast and it hits you like a truck. So what must you do so that your heart doesn't forget? You have to stop and remember. This is very important. I'm going to give you an illustration from my own little world and my life is next month, I'll celebrate with my beautiful bride 13 years of being married. Next in July 29th. I know the date. Now, the year is easy, 2000, so 2013, 13 years. And so that's easy enough for me. But I don't remember, but the date's important to me as well. July 29th, 13 years. What we do, now this is kind of sappy, maybe sentimental, but what we do every single year on our anniversary in the evening, kids get in bed, and we sit on the couch, and we watch our wedding video. And so we, we used to have it on, you know, those tapes? Well, now it's been transferred, and it's in our computer now, so we just plug it in. And, 
And so we sit together and we remember. I remember that day and seeing the, the, the pictures, seeing the video of, of my absolutely stunning bride walking towards me. This is mind-boggling to me, guys, that a woman would actually do that, that she would dress up and look amazing and then walk towards you. And then before a pastor, or in my case, my own dad, who's also the pastor, and before your closest friends and family, and then say, I do. For better or worse, whatever life brings us, sickness or health, riches or not, I'll be yours until, until death separates us or until Christ returns. And seeing the images of, of my bride walking towards me and then holding her and remembering my wedding day just makes me fall in love with her all over again. I remember. And it keeps my heart tender and beating fast for us and our relationship and, and keeping things out that would come in and compete for my affections for her. It's like, no, I love Jesus, so I want her more. And so remembering is so important, taking time to remember, which is why you see here the Apostle Paul tells Titus, remind the church. Help them to remember. Don't forget these truths. And then he goes on to describe them, and he gives them three Three specific truths in this text that you must remember. And if you do, if you remember these things every day, your heart will stay tender. You'll fight your apathy and your desire for comfort. And you will have a gospel-centered life. And you will go forth and display the gospel to your world and the one all around us. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remember what? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So we're told here to remember who we are. So number one, first of all, to remember who you are. You have to remember who you are in Christ. This is the first thing you must remember. Who are you in Christ? Well, you are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are being sanctified. You are a son or daughter of the King. You have eternal value. Jesus loves you. How do I know He loves you? He died on the cross. There is no greater display of love than Jesus hanging on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He loves you that much. Who are you? You belong to Jesus. You have a new nature, as we'll see later on in this same passage. And so then, he gives seven specific characteristics of what it means to live a gospel-centered life in light of what Jesus has done for you, how he has saved you now we should live this way. And he gives seven characteristics of a life that is truly based upon, centered on the gospel. So a gospel-centered life is one that is submissive to rulers and authorities. We are not here to overthrow the UAE government. 
We are here to submit to the UAE government. We are here, like we mentioned earlier, to submit a formal request, humbly asking our government for permission to meet in the school. We are to be submissive to our rulers and pray for our rulers. So what is your attitude towards the government here? Because the gospel-centered life is one that is submissive and has a good attitude towards the government. Next, it says obedience. We must obey God's word. This is the authority in your life. It says, ready for every good work, we should sacrifice ourselves to serve others. Speak evil of no one. There's no room for slander or gossip for a believer. A gospel-centered life is one where you speak well of other people. Avoid quarreling, he says. Now, this is easy when they're your friends and you already like them. But when it's someone that you don't particularly like, someone that maybe is a little bit more difficult, they have that sans paper personality, if you know what I mean, and they rub you the wrong way and make you raw, even with those people, we're not to quarrel. It says be gentle. He says show courtesy, those seven. And so we're called to do this. We're, we're called to show grace. And so these seven characteristics are what define what a follower of Jesus must look like, what, what it looks to have a gospel-centered life someone who is redeemed and who is living like it. Now, I'm going to give you three words that summarize this so you can remember what this is in a very simple way. I've used them before, and these three words basically are our strategy for how we accomplish our mission as a church. It's growth, community, and influence. These are the three words that define how we accomplish our strategy. Or, so the mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. Well, how do we do it? We live lives of growth, community, and influence. And so you see that in these seven characteristics, reaching maturity in your growth so that you are submissive and obedient. If you're not growing, you're not going to be obedient. So we grow in our obedience and our submissiveness. So that is spiritual growth. Community. He has four characteristics here of living in community. What does he say? Speak evil of no one. Be gentle. Be courteous. Don't quarrel. This has to do with relationships, having sound, Christ-centered relationships where we are kind to other people. I mean, it's just that simple. We teach our little kids, be kind, don't be mean. Respect others. Community, we need to live life in community. That's why we have home groups at our church, so you can experience Christ together. So growth, community, and influence. What does he say about influence? He says, ready for every good work ready to serve others, ready to go share the gospel. That's the ultimate good work to share the gospel. And so he, here's these seven characteristics that define a gospel-centered life. Quite simply, it's living a life of growing, abiding in Jesus, living a life of community with other believers, living a life of influencing others with the gospel. Growth, community, and influence. That is a gospel-centered life. However, that can't happen only on Friday mornings. It's not going to work that way. If, if you want to put on the show and impress people and maybe even impress your wife or your husband that you came to church, and so I'm, I'm checking off the religious box duty, and so I'm, I'm going to live this life on Friday morning, it's not going to work. That's not going to be enough to grip your heart so that you will fight your desire for comfort and and apathy 
to actually live a life that pleases Christ. It has to be every single day. You must spend time with Christ every single day. And so living gospel-centered life is not Friday morning. It's where every single corner of your life is affected by the truth of the gospel, of Jesus' grace. And so the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus must define you. You must define who you are. When you look in the mirror and you say, I am father, or I am husband, or I am worker, or I am mother, or I am daughter, or whatever your role, how you define who you are, you must define who you are in Christ by the cross. Who am I? I am redeemed. I belong to Jesus. We must define who we are in light of the gospel. Every single element of our lives. And so a gospel-centered life is one where everything you think, everything you speak, and everything that you do before God is, is funneled through this grace of God seen on the cross. And so what, what the gospel does is it completely transforms us. And so what it does is we kind of lay down, we give up, this endless effort to somehow measure up to God and we just accept His grace. We accept the gift. We become people that despite the fact that we are offended and people hurt us and people aren't always kind to us, we are ready to forgive. And we offer this lavish forgiveness to people because we have been forgiven by Jesus. And we are quick to repent. And we're not defensive. Whenever someone says, you know, I, I don't know about your attitude there. I'm not sure about what you're doing. Or are you sure you're okay? That you actually have the kind of relationship. People speak truth to you. We'll look at that next week as we conclude Titus. And we'll, we'll look at reading the gospel in our relationships. We love others. We show grace. Because God has loved us and shown us grace. And we're known for being generous. We're, we're known for giving and not, not hoarding. We serve others sacrificially. Why? Because that's what Jesus had done for us. And so a gospel-centered life is completely, radically different from religion. That's not what we're talking about. This is not religion. This is being transformed by Jesus experiencing him, and he changes your heart. And so following Jesus must define us. So remember who you are in Christ, and these seven characteristics just remind us of what we are. See, we can't just claim it. This is very important, and we're talking about here this morning on revealing the gospel to the world, right? That's, that's what we're talking about because it says to all people. Why does it matter so much how we live? Why can't we just tell people about Jesus? You know why? Because they won't believe us. If we don't look different from others who don't know Jesus, they won't believe the gospel. They won't believe that the gospel actually makes a difference. And so if we complain just how everyone else complains at work, they see no difference. If they see us Talking to when they, they talk, watch what they watch, and go where they go, do what they do. If we live the same way as those around us that don't know Jesus, there's no difference. 
And so it's not being revealed. And so they don't see God being displayed in your life, and so therefore they don't really believe you or the gospel. And so having a gospel-centered life will enable you to reveal the gospel. But you see, this is so internal. It has to start from deep inside. And so you have to be abiding in Jesus. You have to spend time reading his word. And read it slow. Let the truth sink in. And then think about those truths. Meditate on them. Mold them over. Spend time applying it to you. Not, not to your wife, applying it to you. It's easy to read and say, hey, honey, can you read this sentence right here? It's important for you to read this. No, no, no. You read it and apply it to you. And then you model it to her. And let her see Jesus in you. Spend time reading and meditating. Spend time praying, interceding for others, just talking to him, connecting. The key here is abiding in Jesus. Remembering your sin. Remembering the cross. We have to daily remind ourselves of these truths. And so I say it this way, preach the gospel to yourself. I preach it to you on Fridays, but that's just 35, 40 minutes on a Friday. You need to preach it to yourself every day. This is what we, we need, this. Remember who you are. You belong to Christ. Number two, second truth you must remember. Remember who you were. So first, remember who you are. Currently in Christ, remember who you were. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were, there's a key, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a pretty picture, right? It's a horrible picture. He gives seven characteristics. He first gives seven of a life that's gospel-centered, and then now he gives seven of a life that is self-centered. This is a life that does not have the gospel. This is devoid of the grace of God. So before God transformed you, you were foolish, using your own logic that got you nowhere. You were disobedient. You were unteachable and rebellious. You were led astray. We were deceived. We believed the lie that that sin's going to satisfy you. Led astray, believing the lie that sin's going to give you joy or happiness or pleasure. When it doesn't, all it does is destroy and leave you wanting more and never satisfying. Deceived. It says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's what sin does. It traps people. It traps us. And it enslaves us. And we feel like, man, we're trapped and we can't get out. And then... Simple little habits then become vicious addictions, and then you're enslaved to it. And this can be just attitudes. It's easy to see the sex or the, or the set or whatever, drug or alcohol addict, but I'm talking about attitudes that can be very damaging, as we see here. Like it says malice, being mean, and envy. Envy is one that's really subtle. This is not being satisfied with who you are or what you look like or who you're married to or not being married or being married and wishing you weren't married, not being content with what God has given to you or where you work or your education or your home country or not being content with your intelligence or your salary, not being content with 
what you own or who your kids are or wanting more, wanting less, whatever it is, whatever it is that we can see others and say, man, I wish I had that. I wish I was like her. I wish I didn't, whatever. And we envy. We're not content. And when we are not content, we're always wanting more. It leads to the next one, which is hate, which is the seventh characteristic here. Hate flows from envy. So a hateful person despises anyone that stands in their way or somehow displeases them. And so envious people, if, if you don't end it there, will lead into then hating those that have what you don't have. But have you ever met a generous person that hates? Think for a second. Think who you know that is really generous. They just give. Who do they hate? Generous people don't hate because a generous person is content with what they have and they give to others. They don't, they don't keep. They're not self-focused. They're other and God-focused and, and so they love and they give and they don't hate. So it's very important that we understand these characteristics. But see, here's the problem. We can think of sin as being like these, in particular, these seven things, these seven characteristics that are bad, and so sin is doing bad things. And it is. So I'm not denying that sin is doing bad things, that sin is individual actions, but it's actually more than that. Sin runs deep. Sin is our nature. We have, our heart is just bent towards being selfish. To the core, we're selfish, we're sinful. And so sin isn't just the individual little sins that you do. Sin is the attitude of the heart that flows from having a corrupted, sinful nature. We need new hearts. That's the point of the gospel. This reminds me of, of my little girl, precious, now six-year-old, little princess of mine. And a couple of months ago, she was being very foolish. She was being very disobedient. And I had to discipline her like three times in the same morning for the same thing. And I just, I sat down, and she was sobbing, and I said, Abigail, do you see your heart? Like, do you see this pattern? That this has been not once, not twice, but now three times the same sin. Abby, do you see your heart? Do you see your sin? So she was just crying. She says, Daddy, it's just so hard to obey. You can relate to that, can't you? This six-year-old girl, repentant remorseful, wanting to obey her mommy and daddy, but in a moment of honesty, just sheer guttural honesty, says, Daddy, it's just so hard. And I hug her, and I say, Abby, I know. I know it's hard to obey. That's why God sent Jesus, to save you, to save your daddy. He sent Jesus because he wants to give us new hearts, a new nature that can change our hearts so that when now we want to please Jesus and obey him and not have to out of religious obligation. She's young, but she's beginning to get it. She's beginning to understand the grace of God, the power of God, of the Holy Spirit that has come to change lives and to change our sinful nature, to have a new nature, a new heart that desires to please God. Parents, 
there's a lot of parents in this room. How you teach your children about this matters. You must teach your children that they are sinners. That sounds weird, but you have to. You have to teach them the gospel. Teach your children that God sent his son to die for them because they're sinners and they need new hearts and that there is sin and it runs deep. And it's not just external behavior modification. It's much deeper than that. And so as parents, we must teach our children about the gospel, that there is a God in heaven, that we have sinned against him, that God sent his son to save us, and we must respond with faith and repentance so that they understand who Jesus is and why he came. Parents, if you think that your children are pure, if if you believe that, then uh, woe is you. I'm serious. Uh, You know, it sounds funny, but I'm telling you, if you think that your child doesn't have sin until they're significantly older, maybe when they're adults, and then maybe they make mistakes, if that's your view of sin, then you're, you're going to raise children who don't believe the gospel because they don't think they're sinners. They don't need Jesus. If our kids don't believe that they're sinners, then what's the point of the cross? That's the whole point. We have all offended a holy God, and we all need someone beyond ourselves who came and paid the price and died on the cross in our place. That's the point of the gospel, that we're not good, that we need a Savior. And God in his love provided one for us. And when you go to work and you see your coworkers that seem to be doing okay, seem to have moral lives, they're not okay. Your coworkers that don't know Jesus really are not okay. I don't care how it looks. They're not. They're not forgiven. They're guilty before God, and they are desperate for God, even if they don't realize it. And so it's on us to tell them. It's on us to tell them the good news of who we once were, but how God has changed us. And so tomorrow you have an opportunity. I mentioned the last two weeks, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., right here in the zoo in the first floor conference room, we're going to have a seminar called Sharing Your Faith in the UAE. So it's just sharing your faith, but in this cultural context. We want you to understand how to clearly and confidently share your faith. We want you to know how to answer questions for those that have a different faith background. We, we, we want you to know how to answer typical um, questions or objections about our faith. And so when your neighbor says, I don't believe the Bible because it's been changed and it's corrupted, what would you say to him? Well, come tomorrow and we'll help you. Know how to respond to those that would say the Bible is corrupted or say, no, you have three gods or say whatever. And so we're going to address these issues and give you the confidence so you can come and know how you can go and share with people from the UAE. Oh, there's so many expats here from many different countries, but they need to know. So bring a notebook, bring a pen, get ready to take notes from 10 to 2. We're going to have lunch. Now, we had registration. If you didn't register, it's not too late. Please come tell me so that we're, we're sure that, that you'll have a, a sandwich, all right? Tomorrow morning, it's important. The more that we recall, the more that we remember our own sinfulness, the, then the more grateful we will be for our salvation. 
And so we remember that we're sinners and we're grateful for our forgiveness. And then we'll be more motivated to tell others. And so here's the thing. If you don't remember this, you won't do it. You'll get too wrapped up in what life has to offer you. And you'll just go about living like a leaf in the wind, floating around with no intentionality. Three truths. Number one is remember who you are. You belong to Christ. Number two, remember who you were before you knew Christ. You were enslaved sinner. Number three, remember. Remember what? The gospel. Remember the gospel itself. That's verses four through seven. Describe the gospel. But when the goodness of our God, Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel. If you ever want to go to one passage where you can just show the gospel, go to Titus 3, 1 through 8. This is it. You can open to this page right here, this paragraph, and say, look, this is what people who know Jesus live like. This is what people who don't know Jesus live like. And this is what makes the difference. The gospel, it's right here in black and white. It's plain. It's clear. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ is what changes everything. So it says when the goodness and loving kindness of God came. And so condemnation doesn't change us. God's goodness changes us. Remember when you received Christ. Stop and remember, when you, re- when you first repented and believed, you were overwhelmed by what? By God's love. You were not overwhelmed by the condemnation. Christ endured that for you. On that day when you received Christ, you were overwhelmed by the love and the grace of God. Are you trying to earn your salvation? Are you trying to somehow measure up to God? You can't. You'll fall short. We all do. It says in verse 6 that we're saved. It says, through Jesus Christ, the Savior, says we are justified. We will all stand one day before a holy God, and he will have a verdict, whether it's innocent or guilty. What will this holy judge say to you? That's the question. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came and he died on the cross, took the penalty for our sins upon himself, the sin that we committed, our condemnation, our guilt poured out on a holy and sinless and perfect sacrifice for us so that God could maintain his holiness and his justice. And we're justified, we're declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Have you ever turned away from your sin and truly believed in Christ alone, through your faith alone, by his grace alone, for your salvation, or are you trusting in your religion or in your ability to somehow please God? Verse 5 is critical. It says that it's through the washing of regeneration. The Holy Spirit, it says here, regenerates, gives us new hearts, recreates us, gives us a new nature where now we want to. Like I told my little girl, that's why Jesus came, to regenerate, to give us new Hearts that now beat fast for him. But the problem is that we can get gospel amnesia. We can forget it. And if you're here today, and this is your first time to hear it, then hear it clearly. You can repent and believe today. 
and be forgiven, be regenerated. You can. But if you're here today and you've received Christ in the past, all of us can easily get this amnesia, this gospel forgetfulness. Because life is busy, life is fast. We can't forget, we must remember. God is not measuring your performance. He's asking you to trust him. This is key. God is not measuring how good you are. He's saying, trust me. You see, the gospel frees us, it liberates us from running ragged and trying to somehow be holy and, and please God. You don't have to. Jesus pleased God for you. And he offers you salvation. And so then God motivates us to grow and be more like Christ and live gospel-centered lives. But he motivates us because we're already accepted. And so his acceptance we love God. We have his approval. That then motivates us to grow and be more like his son. You see, God motivates us to grow because of acceptance, not toward it. See, some people think that they have to do enough good to please God. But that's not true. God's approval is the, so his approval is a very power that liberates you from the snare of sin. God's approval is not the reward for liberating yourself. You don't free yourself from sin. And because you become so good and you freed yourself, now God approves you. That is religion and it will get you nowhere. God says, I have liberated you from your sin with my son's death. And now because of that, you can be motivated please me. We can't get that backwards. Verse 8 as we close. This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So first we must remember who we are in Christ, who we used to be in Christ and remember the gospel that has made it possible. And it says here, devote yourselves to good works. So how we live matters. We must be motivated to live a life of doing good works, of being gospel-centered because of what Christ has done for us, fueled through relationship. If you read the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, where it describes the story of Jesus and how he lived and what he did, you will see many examples of people that encountered Christ. They were forgiven. They received him. And then they walked away just nice and quiet, right? No. Not even one. Read the Gospels. You will not see a single example of someone that came to Christ, believed in him, was transformed by him, and walked away quietly. There's zero examples of that. Every single example of someone that encounters the living Christ, that is transformed, runs away, telling everyone what Jesus has done for him or her. That's what followers of Jesus do. They go and tell others and go make more disciples. That's who we are, fundamentally transformed. And so if you have no passion to tell others, if it's just, eh, if it just doesn't really ever cross your mind, it's not really my agenda, then that is a spiritual problem, likely a sin problem. We have to repent of that and say, Jesus, I love you more. Help me to be bold. Help me to be intentional. 
going to live a life of, of growth and community and, of course, influence. That's what, that's what we do. We make disciples. That's what we're about. Nothing else really matters but living a life that glorifies him. And the main way we do that is proclaiming the gospel. And so we're about multiplying ourselves, discipling others, the church multiplying, and seeing his kingdom proclaimed. Will you pray with me? Our Holy Father, this morning we are humbled that you would meet us here. We are humbled, Father, that you would allow us to know you and to go forth and make you known to all the nations. We thank you for the privilege of being your children, being your ambassadors, of being changed by your gospel. I pray for anyone here in this room that does not know you, that has never repented of their sins and has never been honest with themselves and with you. I pray that they would repent, that they would believe in you, and that they'd be regenerated as it describes, and that they would be justified, declared righteous because of the work that your son did on the cross. I pray that we would live gospel-centered lives for your glory, motivated to please you because we're accepted by you, not trying to do good things so that you will accept us. Thank you for your approval. Thank you for your son's work on the cross. Thank you that we can follow you together. Thank you for this morning. We just pray this in the name of Jesus.